0: Welcome to the Eyes on Conservation podcast. I'm Gregory Haddock, and I'm joined here with Kristen Tiesch. How you doing, Kristen?
1: I'm doing great, despite right. you know, despite day forty four, forty five, forty six. You know, <laughs> I, do I don't even day? count
0: anymore. What's you know, what's the point? You know,
1: <laughs> I live by the moon one, now. It's all one big day in in quarantine.
0: That's right. Forty five, <laughs> eighty two, hundred and four. You know, it's just, they're just numbers. That's the old world, and we're in the new world now.
1: We are. We are. So, yeah, I'm excited to be here today to talk to you about one of my favorite subjects.
0: Yes, we definitely are looking forward to this conversation. I am particular. You know, people who are listening to the show right now may not realize that Kristen is actually directing and producing a feature-length film called The Invisible Mammal, all about the life of bats. Um, and obviously right now that's a really, it's just strange timing, right? Um, I don't know how you might define that, but I know for a lot of people at home, you know, they're hearing all these different things about bats and how they might or might not be responsible for the situation. Take it away. Like what, what, what's been your experience? You've had a, obviously you've talked to a lot of different experts in this field, what's what's been the uh, the outcome of that
1: basically i had big plans for 2020 a lot of people had big plans for 2020 but my big plans for this year all revolved around doing a lot of field work you know filming the work of bat scientists bat researchers across north america you know here in california i was going to go back to michigan upper peninsula And I was probably also going to go back to Texas to film the work of these amazing bat scientists who are stopping at nothing to find solutions to the bat pandemic of white nose syndrome that has been just decimating bat populations across the continent, east to west, north to south, since 2006. Like I said, I had plans. I had shoots lined up. And then in comes coronavirus and I'm still hosting fundraising events and all of a sudden people at my fundraising events start asking me about coronavirus and whereas that's not necessarily the focus of my film or had not been now it definitely is (laughs) and because the scientists are no longer able to do any more bat research out in the field they're not able to do
0: any research in the field right now
1: No, since April 10th, the U.S. government suspended all field research. But on top of all of that, the researchers themselves have decided voluntarily that because They don't want to use any additional PPE that could be going to hospitals and healthcare workers, that they themselves have been stopping the field research during the pandemic. It's just safer for everybody. It's safer for the bats, and it's safer for all of the healthcare workers who are trying to do their jobs. Right. So as a result of not being able to do any filming out in the field and no fundraising events and no nothing i decided the best thing to do would be to try to set up some interviews with the experts through on an online meeting and, Yeah, yeah and some so, incredible
0: guests here so i mean tell us a little bit about them what do you what do you have for us today
1: So the first interview is going to be with Dr. Winifred Frick, who is the chief scientist at Bat Conservation International. And she's also an associate research professor in ecology and evolutionary biology at UC Santa Cruz. And Dr. Frick is one of the characters in my film, The Invisible Mammal. When I heard about the connection between bats and coronavirus and COVID-19, I knew that she would be the right person to talk to, to get the facts, to clear up any misinformation, and just to share the knowledge that she has about bats with all of our listeners.
0: Well, share it with us. Let's hear it.
1: Okay, let's go. Thank you, Winifred, for joining us. My pleasure to be here. How has the COVID-19 pandemic changed the focus of your work at Bat Conservation International?
2: Well, like most people uh, here in the United States and really over large parts of the world, we're sheltered in place. We're doing our part to prevent the spread of the novel coronavirus. And so, you know, for our work here at BCI, Bat Conservation International, we do a lot of travel. We do a lot of field work. And so, of course, we put a, a pause on all of that. But, um, the focus of our work stays essentially the same. I mean, our um organization's mission is um dedicated to protecting bat populations around the world and ensuring that no bats go extinct and Of course, the most fun parts of that job are getting out into the field and uh working with bats um directly and visiting the places where um in their habitats where they need to be protected. but there's lots that we can do to protect bats um from our home offices and so where everybody at b c i is still Um, working hard um, every day and doing like everybody around the world of working on our work-life integration of homeschooling our kids while working hard on, you know, data analysis, report writing, scientific publications, and um, connecting with our partners too around the world, making sure everybody's safe and doing everything we can to, to protect bats and protect ourselves.
1: So most everybody around the globe is in the same situation. You know, our lives have just been completely changed by the coronavirus pandemic. And everyone is also following the news and the connection between bats and coronavirus. Can you explain how scientists were able to make that connection?
2: It's important to know that we don't yet know how the novel coronavirus spilled into the human population and the, the pandemic that we're experiencing is caused from human to human transmission of this novel strain of coronavirus. What we do know from past work by some really excellent scientists who study zoonotic disease, so diseases that are caused from uh, viruses that naturally occur in wildlife populations, is that this group of beta coronaviruses, which is sort of the family of coronaviruses, that the SARS-CoV-2, which is the technical name of the virus that's causing the um, COVID pandemic. COVID is what we call the disease caused by the virus, and SARS-CoV-2 is the technical name of the virus itself, more commonly called the novel coronavirus. So SARS-CoV-2, the novel coronavirus, is part of this beta coronavirus family. And what we know is that there are lots of different beta coronaviruses found in wild bat populations. It's presumed that the original strain of this uh, what was likely in a, a bat in China, but how it then got from the bats into the human population is still a scientific mystery and something that people are working on. Oftentimes those spillover events happen through an intermediate host, in the case of SARS, which is closely related to this uh, coronavirus, it came through an intermediate host of a civet cat, which was harvested in, in markets. And there's some evidence or there's been some work that suggests that perhaps pangolins are working as the intermediate host in this case, although that's still under active investigation. And it's we just don't know yet exactly how the spillover event happened.
1: Right. The last fundraising event that I did, everybody was already asking me questions about bats and coronavirus. People are starting to panic already, but how do we explain to people that it's not the bat's fault
2: First of all, in terms of like your immediate risk from a bat, there is no risk from a bat of contracting the SARS-CoV-2 or or getting, getting COVID, especially here or really anywhere. So COVID is now a human disease where there is some evidence that some animals can now get sick from COVID. They're getting it from humans. So this is not a virus that is circulating in wildlife populations right now, posing risk to people. The risk of contracting COVID is really from getting it from another person who is sick, and either an asymptomatic person or um, someone who is shedding virus. And, and that's why everybody needs to be you know, following the social distancing protocols and wearing masks and, and really following the guidelines from CDC. Bats are not, not a health risk in, in this way whatsoever.
1: I've read an article recently about people freaking out in Peru and starting to kill bats. Before there was coronavirus, there was rabies and people were afraid of bats. And so here we are again.
2: So there's a lot of misinformation and there's a lot of fear. And I think, you know, one of the things I think a lot of people are feeling around COVID is this sense of powerlessness, right? I mean, we, we are empowering ourselves by social distancing and wearing PPE to protect ourselves, but there, we've lost a lot of our freedom. And so people feel really unsettled. And unfortunately, I think sometimes when that happens, we want to blame something for all this change that's happening and and sometimes that's being manifested in some places as backlash against species that people maybe were already predisposed to be to carry fear for. But bats really shouldn't be feared. They are a really important part of our natural ecosystems. They're part of our biodiversity. In large parts of really everywhere bats occur, they're performing important ecosystem services, and they just don't pose a threat. Part of being a bat biologist is fighting against this misperception that bats need to be feared. And so like, in some ways, this is a familiar narrative, but now just on like global steroids, right? The most important thing is, to be really clear about what we know and what we don't know, be true to the science and use the science to help us understand how best we can protect people and protect wildlife and not scapegoat wildlife, not, not scapegoat bats, not scapegoat pangolins, not scapegoat wildlife in general. And look at the hard truths about this was a a human created phenomenon through the, the destructive and unsustainable uses of the way we destroy the planet. And like, we got to take responsibility. Unlikely things are going to happen. And the best thing that we can do with all of the modern tools that we have in society is to be prepared and be ready. And this wouldn't be a pandemic. You can still have spillover events, but it wouldn't be a global pandemic the way it's played out If we had acted according to the top level guidance of what we should do in these kinds of cases, like this is not surprising. There were people who knew that this was a threat. They there's we all the science told us a to expect this and b how to handle it when it did happen. And we didn't do those things. So this is not the bat's fault. This is our fault. This isn't any wildlife's fault. This is our fault.
1: The other thing that I've read is that bats can carry up to 200 coronaviruses among other kinds of viruses. So how do bats coexist with so many viruses?
2: This is one of the things that makes bats so fascinating and interesting, and and actually, you know, really important in the world is that they are capable of um, harboring a wide uh, diversity of viruses without actually getting sick, and that's one of the scientific mysteries. And there's some great researchers who are actually looking at this, trying to understand. The, the virology and the physiology. It's a, it's a little outside my area of expertise to be totally honest, but there could, this could hold the clues for you know, either treatments or cures or vaccines of having a better understanding of how bats do tolerate different viruses without actually getting sick.
1: So can you explain how a virus can jump from a bat to a human? And is it safe now for people to go to places like Bracken Cave or Congress Avenue Bridge?
2: Yeah, so it's really important to know that there's no risk of getting COVID from watching a bat flight right now. You know, those places, I think, qualify as social gathering sites. And so I'd say it may not be uh, safe to go aggregate at those places, not from any risk from the bats, but from uh, the risk of being around a bunch of other people The study of sort of zoonotic spillover of how viruses can spill over, sometimes spillover happens from one species to another. We're most interested and concerned about it when it spills over into the human population. There's many, there's different ways that can happen these coronaviruses are RNA viruses. And so they can mutate really quickly. And again, that starts to stretch a little bit of my specific expertise, but we know that spillover events happen and it's this coronavirus is not the first time, you know, that's what happened with SARS. That's what happened with MERS. Those were all in a related group of coronaviruses, but there's also other types of diseases caused by viruses that jump from one uh, what we call a reservoir host, the host where they're naturally circulating in that host and then get into another host. And oftentimes when that happens, they can mutate and then that changes the virulence and then you get the kinds of you know, disease outbreaks that we see.
1: What do you think that we can do to prevent coronavirus pandemics from happening again?
2: Well, there's some great researchers at EcoHealth Alliance, um, which is a nonprofit that is really focused on this connection between um, wildlife disease and human health. There's also the One Health Initiative. So EcoHealth Alliance worked with a group uh, called PREDICT that was really about trying to understand how spillover events happen and how to how to predict them and how to prevent them. And so understanding what kind of viruses are out there, what are sort of at the most risk of spilling over, and then having really good Practices around trying to prevent the kinds of conditions that, can lead to spillover. And so the big conservation message here is that this is not wildlife's fault. This is our fault for the way that we treat wildlife, that we're invading their habitats. We're harvesting them unsustainably. We're bringing them into super stressful conditions that oftentimes are unsanitary. And those are all the conditions that can lead to this type of spillover event. And so we really need a global community to take stock of the ways that we're inappropriate and unsustainably using wildlife and destroying natural habitats because that's the underlying cause and problem.
1: One of the things that's also causing some of this mixing to happen between humans and wildlife is, is just that we're taking up a little bit more of their natural habitat for all kinds of wildlife species. So how do we find a way to better live with wildlife?
2: Well, I think habitat protection is key. Leaving wild places for wild animals to be wild animals is a really critically important part of the solution. I also think that we need to stop the excessive and unsustainable wildlife trade, right? We need to not be harvesting animals unsustainably. Um, We need to take a close look at the ways in which the wildlife trade works and the conditions that in areas where there is still bushmeat hunting, that it's done from a human health perspective that needs to be done in a way that really reduces the chance for these spillover events. From a wildlife conservation perspective, we need to really reduce the amount of that kind of activity so that we can have biodiversity, have these animals living in wild places, doing what they should be doing, which is, you know, (laughs) being undisturbed um, uh, by people and being part of natural ecosystems. And natural ecosystems, you know, provide an enormous amount of benefit to our species. I mean, natural places are still where a lot of people get clean water, clean air and food from, and it is vitally important in the fight against climate change too. So there's no end to the number of benefits that um, protected wild places provide.
1: Can you talk a little bit more about how bats are an indicator species and why protecting biodiversity is so important in preventing the spread of pandemics like coronavirus?
2: Well, bats are in a really important part of biodiversity, full stop. Globally, bats make up uh, nearly a fifth of all mammalian species. And so it's a really important part of our mammalian biodiversity around the world. A lot of people don't realize just how many different species of bats there are. Dr. Nancy Simmons, who's the curator of mammalogy at the American Museum of Natural History, now keeps and curates a list of the total number of recognized bat species around the world. And last time I checked it, I think we were at 1,419 different bat species. So that's a lot of different species around the world that are doing lots of different, interesting, fascinating things. And um, there's lots that we can learn from them. In tropical um, forests, bats are really important pollinators of different plants. They're important um, seed dispersers. Most bats are insectivorous. And so they're eating nocturnal flying insects. And, And they're an incredibly important and fascinating group of organisms.
1: One of the things that I learned from you when I was filming with you in Michigan, you were talking about the way to help bats through white-nose syndrome is to optimize their habitat. Can you talk
2: a little bit more about that? So white-nose syndrome is a disease caused by a fungal pathogen. So COVID, right, is a viral pathogen. White-nose is a fungal pathogen, and it caused an epidemic um, causing severe mortality of hibernating bats here in North America. It first emerged about 10 years ago. And from, the, from what we can tell, the fungus is actually well distributed across Europe and temperate Asia. And it most likely got um, introduced here through some sort of human trade or travel because bats don't naturally fly between um, Eurasia and North America. White-nose syndrome is a disease of bats and is transmitted bat to bat. People can get infected um, with the fungus that causes white-nose syndrome and bats aren't transmitting COVID. The parts that was similar is that we've seen, you know, COVID spread really rapidly. And we saw the fungal pathogen that caused white-nose syndrome spread really rapidly. The bats aren't able to follow social distancing ordinances, right? And so they like to group together underground during hibernation. And so there can be a lot of transmission of the fungus um, while they're um, in dense clusters underground and they, they don't do social distancing. (laughs) If we could only teach the bats how to social distance. What do you think
1: ultimately we can learn from this COVID-19 experience about infectious disease, ecological restoration and conservation and our own health and the health of the planet?
2: I think there's many lessons. (laughs) Like what a connected global community we are, that we're connected not only to Basically, all other people on the planet, but also to other organisms, how important it is to really evaluate the way that we're using nature and using um, wildlife, and really put at the forefront uh, an emphasis on protecting natural habitats and protecting wildlife in ways that don't lead to disturbance and encroachment and ultimately risks to human health. From a personal perspective, I think that we've learned that we actually can come together as a global community and make really hard choices to do the right thing. And I would hope that that lesson may carry forward when we think about the response that we need as a global community to fight climate change and that we can make bold, impactful, hard, but necessary decisions to protect ourselves and protect our planet. What can people do to support bat conservation right now? More important than ever is spreading positive messages about bats, letting people know that bats don't need to be feared bats are not the culprit that bats are fascinating, valuable, incredible parts of our planet, and that they deserve our protection just as much as every as everything else. so that's really paramount countering any misguided or misinformed fears that bats really are, are not a threat and do not need to be feared, but rather need to be protected and need to be protected in their wild places. The organization I work for, Bat Conservation International, is partially funded by membership and donations. So, you know, right now everyone I know is sort of evaluating <laughs> who they can give to, but if you're in a position that you can give and this is a cause that speaks to you, then there's organizations like ours, uh, ours or like ours, that are, are, trying to do the best for wildlife conservation.
1: Thank you so much, Dr. Frick, for joining us today. And we appreciate all the work that you're doing to save bats here in America and around the planet.
2: Well, thank you very much. It's my pleasure.
0: It's interesting to hear perspectives like that, because when you you see these kind of environmental problems or these you know extinction crises or a, a virus like this this pandemic, you can almost always trace it back to where humans somehow got in there and messed things up for a natural ecosystem. Do you feel like that's kind of what's going on?
1: Yeah, it's definitely what's going on. I mean, there's a lot of examples of animals who carry a disease that somehow spills over to the human population, and Dr. Fricks talks about that at length during this interview, but she's trying to bring the the point home that it's not the animal's fault, it's our fault. We're the ones that are deforesting, we're the ones that are developing and taking more animal habitat away, we're the ones that are taking animals out of their habitats and putting them in poor conditions and causing a potential spillover event so it's really not the animal's fault it's it's our fault and so we need to be more cognizant of that as humans and stop pointing the finger at bats or any other wildlife
0: honestly Kristen person to person do you feel like um, hearing Dr. Frick speak that this could be a catalyst for some kind of lasting change
1: it, you know, it's hard to say. I'm an optimist, so I like to think that we're at a crossroads, we're at a turning point And, you know, I like to think that this is a really great opportunity to learn how to do things differently. This is a great opportunity for us as, you know, a generation, as several generations of humans alive that now we're experiencing The plague, we're experiencing the Spanish flu, we're experiencing something that's going to cause us to forever change our behaviors, or that would inspire us to forever change our behaviors. And maybe this is the catalyst. What it's going to take, though, is massive education. We have to keep getting the word out and keep informing others in ways, you know, just like this, this podcast. On Friday, May 8th, 2020, we're going to be holding a Bat Happy Hour on the Wildlands Collective Facebook page, where we're going to be sharing a lot of the same information.
0: Right. And that's going to be awesome. Yeah. So anybody out there listening, uh, May 8th, that's a Friday, and that's going to take place at 5 p.m. Pacific time, a little bat. Happy hour. Um, we'll try to get a recipe out there, right? We're going to be making a, a tequila cocktail on the fly.:
1: Yes, there's gonna be there's going to be all sorts of ingredients, plants that have been pollinated by bats that now go into our special bat themed cocktail.
0: <laughs> that is so awesome. I love it. I love it, love it. Join us May 8th.
1: I think there's like a, um, there's a type of beer that has a bat on it. No
0: I'm gonna, I'll go find it. If there is, I'll find it. So if if you're listening to this before May 8th, you're going to have to look for me holding a, a bat beer of some kind.
1: Bat beer. Get your bat beers out. So speaking of bats and beers, one of the other guests that I interviewed for this podcast is Corky Quirk. And the reason why I bring up beers is she even holds her own brews and bats event, I think, in the summertime. Brews
0: and bats. That's great. Yeah.
1: <laughs> Corky Quirk leads... Um, summertime bat viewings. She calls them bat talk and walks with the general public. And this is in a wetlands area right outside of Sacramento, California. And there's a freeway overpass that has 250,000 bats, uh, Mexican free tail bats that live under the freeway. Yeah, it's an amazing sight. It's yes, it's California's own Congress Avenue Bridge, you know, bat Emergence And it's an amazing site. And these bat viewings are featured in my film, In the Invisible Mammal. So you can go to www.theinvisiblemammal.com and click on watch and check out some of the, uh, the bat action at the Yolo Causeway. And Corky also is a bat rescuer. So she is the founder of NorCal Bats. And she brings injured and orphaned bats into rescue in the Northern California area with the hopes of rehabilitating them and returning them back into the wild. But one of the other restrictions that happened on April 10th, 2020, is that the government suspended all release of rescued bats back into the wild. So now Corky is continuing to rescue bats, but she does not have authorization to release them back into the wild. So I interviewed her about how her rescue operations have changed ever since this new regulation came down.
0: Well, great, let's take a listen.
1: Welcome to Eyes on Conservation, Corky. Thank you. Let's dive in and talk about these new restrictions. And how do these restrictions directly impact your work?
3: Various states throughout the United States have different regulations. And in California, we are still allowed to take in sick, injured, and orphaned bats into wildlife rescue and try to give them a second chance. At this point, we are being asked by the state to hold those bats not release them back into the wild while research is being conducted uh, to find out whether or not a human can pass this COVID-19 back to wildlife and in particular back to the bats.
1: Let's talk a little bit more about how you have to go about doing your rescue in the times of
3: this pandemic. Historically, we get a phone call from some member of the public that has found a bat that's sick or injured or otherwise that they're concerned about. And uh, we'll take that animal into care. Sometimes we go to the site to retrieve the animal, and other times uh, the individual will bring them directly to us. Obviously, we're more hesitant, especially when that means going into homes and businesses to retrieve the animal. We're limiting that much more which does make it hard. I'm trying to spend more time talking through with people how maybe to capture the bat on their own. And then when the bat gets to us, we'll remove the bat from the container, of course, wearing gloves. Uh, We always wear gloves anyway, but now we're wearing a disposable glove on top of our regular leather gloves so that we're not exposing ourselves to the bat. And we're also protecting ourselves in case... The finder is sick and then we dispose of the container that the finder had brought the animal to us in
1: wow so that's that's a whole new protocol that you've had to adapt to then correct
3: it is yeah the the PPE uh, the protective equipment is the the parts that are probably the the biggest change for us uh, like I said we we always wear leather gloves anyway working with the bats, but now we have to have a barrier on top of the leather gloves, and we have to wear face masks, which we did not have to wear prior. We also are required to be able to remove and launder any of the clothing that we're wearing when we're working with the animals. Again, to protect the animal from us rather than protecting us from the bat.
1: Right, and just in the past couple of weeks, there have been a few instances of animals, cats, and even some big cats in the Bronx Zoo who have seemingly been infected with the virus because of human contact. So this is a real concern. And you haven't heard of any bats so far getting COVID-19 from a human.
3: No, um, I haven't, and the reality is As humans, we don't interact that directly uh, with the bats. In general, uh, even if bats are living, say, on your property or even in your home, you're usually not that close to them. Uh, Whereas the keepers at the zoo or people with house cats are much closer to those animals. Also, the zoo attendants are going to notice if their animal does become ill. You know, if they're showing symptoms of respiratory distress, whereas if a bat was to get sick from a human in the wild, we probably would never know. I see.
1: Can you just go into a little bit more detail about why we're so afraid that we would pass the virus as humans pass it to a bat, especially here in North America?
3: We have concerns on two fronts as to humans passing this coronavirus to bats specifically. Um, one is bats in North America already are suffering greatly from another pathogen uh, that was is being passed to bats uh, sometimes by us, and that would be uh, the fungus that causes white nose syndrome uh, and so we know that our behaviors do impact the animals if the bats were to contract this kind of a respiratory disease and then be able to spread it amongst themselves. Uh, We could then potentially see large die-offs, which already are happening, and the impact to the the population is is just devastating. Um, And then, of course, the second is the question of if we were to pass this respiratory illness to bats and if it then developed in the bat colonies, could then they become a reservoir to pass it back to us again? And that's a bit of, you know, a down the road, but we have to worry about these kinds of, of issues.
1: Can you tell us the story of some of the bats so far that have come in to your rescue since the lockdown began?
3: We've had a variety of them. Some of them, of course, don't survive, but some of the ones that are surviving and doing well. Actually, I'm thinking in particular about three that all have similar stories from three different locations All three of them were found trapped in buildings. All three of them had been in those buildings for an extended period of time. And they were severely dehydrated emaciated from lack of access to food and water. Otherwise healthy animals. And two of them came in just before the shutdown. One has come in since. And in each case, we were able to to turn that bat around. And they're doing quite well. Two are female. One is a male. And uh, all three of them are eating and drinking well. They're able to fly. They're healthy animals that normally we would be releasing back out. But in those cases now, because of the current regulations, we're not able to release them. So we'll continue to care for them. And uh, they'll stay with us until the time that the state says um, that we can release. I have a bigger concern for the two females in that this time of year, the majority of female bats in the wild would be pregnant. Captivity, no matter what captivity is like, no matter how hard we try, um, captivity is stressful and pregnancy is stressful. And so I, I do have a, the added concern that will the mother be able to carry that pup to full term? Will the mother care for the pup after birth? I, I don't know whether that pup would be any more successful than an adult animal to potential respiratory issues or not.
1: So you might actually get to witness a bat birth.
3: It's a possibility. I've only once uh, had that honor. I've had bats born in captivity, bats that have come in to rescue already pregnant that have given birth, uh, but I've only once had the, the opportunity to see uh, one of the bats give birth. They're pretty... Uh, shy animals, you know, uh, and for the most part I also try to leave them alone because I feel like that's much less stressful. You know, no matter how much I feel like I'm doing the good things for them, I'm big, you know, and I'm a, a, a potential predator in the wild. And then any bat that we may be able to release, I don't want that bat to develop a dependency or a trust of humans. Uh, we want to keep them wild.
1: How many bats do you usually get into rescue that you can safely and comfortably take care of? And will this restriction of no release impact your ability to take care of the bats?
3: So over the course of a year, we usually get about 200 bats into rescue. Of those, about 40% survive. Once a bat gets found, it's already having a hard time. So 40% survive. And are releasable. How many I can comfortably take care of really depends on whether I'm able to get those animals to eat on their own. So right now it's taking me about two and a half to three hours a night to feed because I have a high number of bats that are not self feeding. I do have other volunteers in our group so we can do some spreading out of the bats when needed. If I can get the bats to eat on their own, then I can take care of more than I can when I have to individual feed them.
1: Have you experienced any change in attitudes uh, among people or newfound fear of bats since people have started to hear about this connection between bats and COVID-19?
3: The phone calls that I receive have definitely changed since the announcement that bats have coronavirus. And, uh, We have coronaviruses too, but there's a lot of misinformation or incomplete, maybe would be the the better term, incomplete information. I am getting more calls from people saying, I'm worried that I could get the COVID-19 from the bat that's roosting in the front entryway of my home. So I do spend quite a bit of time talking with people, but yeah, the fear's. There's way more fears.
1: What do you usually tell people when they call you
3: and they're concerned and they're, they're afraid of that bat roosting in their, in their doorway? I try to spend time first with them, helping them understand that North American bats are different from bats in Asia. The coronavirus now that has, is causing COVID-19 is a human disease. It's not a bat disease, and it's being spread human to human.
1: On the call with Dr. Frick, she mentioned that people shouldn't be afraid of of going to bat-viewing areas, you know, places like Bracken Cave and places even like Yolo Bypass Wildlife Area, to see the bats in the wild and to enjoy this beautiful natural phenomenon. What is going to happen this upcoming year? Since humans are responsible for the spread of this virus— And we have to continue to practice social distancing probably through the summer and beyond. You know, how is that going to change what happens, you know, at this bat viewing place where, you know, where I've enjoyed coming to see the bats on several occasions with a group of people. And this is part of the way that your organization gets the word out about how amazing bats are and also raises money for this conservation organization.
3: We don't know for sure what's going to happen. We're waiting to see what the the governor puts forth as each change happens. We're hopeful that we will be able to do something and we expect it to look different. You know, I expect we won't be carpooling. I expect we will have fewer people on tours so that people are able to spread out more. We'll follow the regulations of the state. The potential for us spreading COVID-19 to bats in those kinds of situations, the bats are not that close to us. You know, those bats are flying many feet away from us. And so I don't, I don't worry about that part. But you're right, it is, it's a big deal for us at the Yolo Basin Foundation to be able to offer those tours, both for education and it is a portion of our income. Most of our income has been, uh, at least income from events, has been lost for the last couple of months. So um, that's hard.
1: You, Corky, basically have dedicated your life to helping people understand bats and their contributions to our shared ecosystem and helping people not to be afraid of bats. So how has this pandemic and its connections to bats made you feel personally? Like what kind of a toll is this taking on your own ability to keep
3: going? Is it discouraging or do you have reasons for hope? Personally, it's hard not to be out educating. Personally, it's hard not to be bringing and sharing and going into the classrooms and the libraries and having people that might be afraid turn around and become excited, or at least understanding. So that's hard. I think that's going to change, so I hold hope for that. The concern that I have is that when humans fear, then we react before we think. Headlines are often written for an impact. And unfortunately, I've seen many that even though the article might be fine, the headline becomes very negative towards bats. You know, I've seen and heard people reacting, uh, you know, on social media about, why don't we just go out and kill them all kinds of comments. And uh, that's disturbing to me.
1: Is there any silver lining to this for, you know, for the bats and for, for us?
3: Boy, that's a tough one. You know, I could find a silver lining of sorts with white nose syndrome in that it was completely by accident. People are not purposely trying to destroy the bats, and a lot of money started coming in for research. With this, people are afraid. There's a lot of irrational behavior bats are being blamed in a different kind of way, I'm not seeing the silver lining. It might be out there. I'd love to know it if it is, but I haven't seen it.
1: I guess maybe it's just a wait-and-see situation. How can someone help you and help the bats during these uncertain times?
3: As far as helping the bats, education is huge. So uh, combating the the negativity, Uh, when people see social media posts that are negative or comments within those posts that are uh, irrational, replying to them, educating people, not in a harsh way, but helping them to understand that bats are not responsible for humans getting this virus. We are. Um, Our behaviors are. The bats in North America are not spreading this. Uh, The bats in Europe are not spreading this. Bats in the majority of the world don 't have the type of coronaviruses that are impacting humans at all, so education huge as far as helping the bats that we have in our care, we do have a Amazon wish list, we have our PayPal account to help purchase the supplies that are needed we 're working on getting more caging because we know we have animals that are going to be long term. If somebody wanted to make a donation or to
1: support your Amazon wish list, is that listed on NorCalBats.org?
3: Yes. Um, on NorCalBats.org, we have a page about how we're funded. And on that page has our, the link to our wish list, and it also has the link to our PayPal account.
1: And then if people are interested in checking out the bats under the Yolo Causeway, they go to YoloBasin.org. Is that correct? That's right. So thank you so much for your time, Corky, and all you do to protect bats and educate people about bats in California and beyond. Yeah, thanks for having me. So Greg, did you learn anything?
0: Oh my gosh, did I It's just education, education, education. Like I get it, you know, there's a there's a there's a fear and you want to keep your family safe and these are really unprecedented times, but Panicking and wanting to kill that bat that's in, you know, the foyer of your house or advocating for wiping out an entire species because you just don't know, you know, and and that's and it's, it's made all the more difficult because now you have these scientists that can't go out and do the work that they would normally do, you know.
1: Right. And I'm glad that you mentioned education because in my experience, filming Corky and going to her bat talk and walks and interviewing her, she's just such a great resource for... California and beyond. She's such a great explainer. You know, she she has so much experience talking to children about bats and doing bat demos, you know, at schools and libraries. It's people like her that I think just have that gift of being able to change anyone's heart and mind, you know, to to help them to think differently about bats and all of the many, many contributions that they offer to our shared ecosystem.
0: You know what she's saying in there about, you know, with with the white nose fungus that she felt that there was a level of silver lining, but with this she doesn't feel that as much. That's a really really stark comment.
1: Yeah, that was that was probably one of the first times that I've heard the darkness in Corky Quirks' voice uh, about this subject. It's heavy. And- yeah. And I mean, it's true. There there was a silver lining to white nose syndrome in that once white nose syndrome started killing bats across the continent, suddenly there was more funding for white nose syndrome research. And if there's more funding for white nose syndrome research, then there was more funding for bat conservation. So there was a silver lining there. And, and with this, I think we're just still too much in the dark. Like there's a lot that we don't know. And I think it's the not knowing that is causing people to feel frustrated. Yeah. So the more that you educate yourself about bats, you know, about bat conservation, about the many species of bats, there's 1,400 different species of bats in the world. Wow. Is it really? Yeah. It's the second largest mammal group next to mice and rats in the world, right? And so, that. yeah, they are these amazing creatures and we know so little about them. So I'm going to just recommend that everybody go to the invisible dot com and yes. check out, you know, check out the short videos that I have on there to to watch those. And they can go to the Invisible Mammal Facebook page and follow us on Facebook and. You know, you'll be able to track the progress of the film that I'm making this year. And then also definitely join us on Friday, May 8th, for the Bat Happy Hour. Get happy about bats. That is
0: going to be so much fun.
1: Yeah, it's a species that we should all be celebrating, not just at Halloween, but we should be celebrating bats year-round.
0: And people should be able to find that happy hour again on uh, Friday, May 8th, by looking at the Invisible Mammal Facebook page, by looking at the Eyes on Conservation Facebook page. There's get plenty of links that will point you back to it if you're contacting us.
1: Right, and the Wildlands Collective Facebook page as well. So you'll be able to find a link to the watch party on any of these locations. So I think this has just been such a great conversation about bats. With you, Greg. Thank you. Yeah, and I hope that our listeners learned a lot, and I hope everybody starts to follow bats more in the news, all of the positive stories about bats, and they should definitely spread the knowledge, spread the love, the bat love. Yeah. All right, well, thank you, Greg, and thank you, listeners, and we'll catch you next time. This episode of Eyes on Conservation was produced and edited by me, Kristen Tiesch. I'd like to thank Gregory Haddock for joining me in this very educational conversation about bats. And I'd also like to thank our guests, Dr. Winifred Frick of Bat Conservation International and Corky Quirk of NorCal Bats and Yolo Basin Foundation. All of the music in this episode was produced by Chris Collins of IndieMusicBox.com. Make sure to go over to our website to check out the show notes at wildlandsinc.org. Slash EOC Thank you so much for listening.